and we're live here for another episode of Bottled Up. My name is Meg and I'm staked to be back in the hosting chair. You're probably sick and tired of hearing my voice by now, but it's only for another week before Ujwal takes us through to the tail end of the first season. Last month, I sat down with Minhas Chowdhury, founder and principal physiotherapist of his own clinic, Pump and Click. We talk about various themes of dealing with adversity and failure, the importance that sport has in the mind and finding your why, and his 12-week high-performance program where we explore the mind and body connection. Now, this episode runs a little longer than usual, but it's a little less intense and a very chill way to celebrate our way out of lockdown. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode with a very funny and positive individual, and I hope to see you guys on the other side. So without further ado, over to you, Minaz. Um, Minaz, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Um, you know, I really do appreciate it. And may I first just start off by saying that that's a very nice job you've got there, mate. Oh, thank you very much, mate. Thank you very much. It's the old pump and click merch. <laughs> mate, I'm so sorry. I was trying my best to try and start a, this conversation in the most creative way that I can, but I just, I just <laughs> failed miserably. I think it's a... I think it's a very uh, good way to show everyone that I'm very blunt. <laughs> oh, dude, you have no idea. Like, I've tried them for the past three days to try and think of the most creative way. It just did not work. <laughs> no, no, it's funny because, like, I always see Joe Rogan starting his podcast with a very random comment. So I was trying to do the same thing. It's just, oh, you just, you, I'm just not born with it, mate. It's just not. <laughs> no, no, mate. But thank you so much for, for coming on and, um, you know, you've got a very interesting story because, you know, obviously you're a physiotherapist and a lot of people might be thinking at the moment, you know, why have we got a physiotherapist on the show today? But um, you're not like any other physio, Minhas, and, and I think you're someone that loves the work that he does and also has a 12-week high-performance program that not only explores um, the physical side of, uh, of you know, of going to the gym and, and, yeah, and ensuring physical health, but also this focus on this connection that our physicality has with our mind. Um, and, and I feel today's conversation, you I know, mean, just for today's conversation, it's a perfect way to get the ball rolling. So are you able to sort of articulate for me and for those who don't really know or who aren't too familiar with what the program is, what the 12-week high-performance program actually entails? Yeah. So the way I sort of see my program um, is, I think, a little bit different to how most people see it when it's up on Instagram or things like that, where you might see people doing your deadlifts, your squats and whatnot. The way I see the program is it is meant for people who are looking to make a drastic transformation in themselves. So I'll take a client and we'll have a discussion about where, what are some things that you want to transform within yourself, mentally or physically, and where do you want to be in a year's time, in five years' time, and things like that. We then use physical training, so the gym training that you see um, that with the videos that I post up, we use that as a vehicle for the transformation that you want to make. And, and as you've probably experienced, um, I'll use certain exercises to actually, say, correct certain behaviors that you might have. Um, and, and so obviously, I, I won't go into any specifics in terms of um, my clients and stuff like that. But um, say I have a client who is very certainty-driven, um, who loves having control over a situation, is very rigid in the way they do things, um, and so my job is, okay, if this person's going to be looking to transform themselves, they must be more open-minded. They must be more flexible to change. So my job then is, hey, okay, this is the structure of what we've done for the program. I'm going to change it up for you right now. I'm not going to give you any control over the situation. Let's take away that certainty element and just throw you into the deep end a little bit. And we'll go through something very intensive. 
And the idea is that you come out of it on the other side of the session and be like, hey, you know what? I didn't do things the way I like to do things and I'm perfectly okay still. And I think in those sort of moments, you realize, okay, crap, I don't need to do things the way I always do them. Um, and that sort of links back to, the, there's this, uh, I think, neuropsychologist um, named Dr. Joe Dispenza. Speaks about it really, really well. And anyone who's listening to this should listen to his talk on YouTube because I'll definitely sort of um, botch his explanation of things. Uh, but what he basically says is, our behavioral patterns are very circuit-driven. So when we're children, we see fire, we touch fire, feel pain. Therefore, we create a circuit of not to touch that fire. Um, now, we do that in every little aspect of our life. When it comes to, say, achieving a certain goal, we have a set routine that all of us will follow. And that we follow that routine from a very young age. So that's created a lot of mini circuits. And we just keep repeating that circuit over and over and over and over again. So our idea of achieving success um, is very rigid. All of us, we're, we're very rigid in the way we might do something. So the idea is how do we, if we need to sort of create a transformation within you, we need to break down a lot of these circuits. We need to put you in a position where, okay, if mm. my current level of being is mm. an actual limiting factor to me achieving a certain goal, then mm. I have to change that part of myself. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned it there. I mean, like this idea of, you know, this the circuit thing because I feel like, you know, a lot of people might establish a circuit, especially when something, when they don't succeed in something. And that's something that I definitely have struggled with, especially if I don't succeed in something, then I kind of just give up and, you know, I, I sort of... You know that sort of that that behavior sort of gets inculcated in other aspects of of my life as well. And I think one of the ways that one of the strategies that you that you told me about breaking that circuit is through the idea of positive affirmations. And I remember you you I remember this very distinctly. You gave an example of like rocks on a balancing scale or something. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the the way I like to sort of see our inner belief systems about anything, and uh, you'll probably remember. Uh, the analogy that I gave you was the public speaking one. Um, the way I like to see it is we've got these old school weighing scales. And on one side, you have all your positive beliefs. And on the other side, you've got all your negative beliefs. And that can be about anything. Um, and the things that sort of create your belief systems, I believe there's three things that create your belief systems. That is an event, words, and thoughts. So you have a positive or negative event. That's going to go in the positive or negative um, side of the scale. But then what we often find, and the public speaking example, uh, if I can use that again, what you often find is we, off, we create these, these belief systems about ourselves more with words and thoughts. So anytime ever, anyone brings up public speaking, we'll say, no, I'm not a good public speaker. Boom. That's another element in the negative weighing scale. Anytime people are talking about public speaking, you're thinking, oh man, I'm such a crap public speaker. That's a negative thought that you've now put in the negative side of the scale. And all of a sudden, this belief system just starts to heavily weigh in the negative side of the scale. When in actual fact, there was only one event. And so it kind of goes back to what we were saying about um, Dr. Joe Dispenza's talk. We're, we're creating this circuit of negative belief system about ourselves when in reality, the event itself was so minuscule or was just one out of all the sort of elements that we've put in that side of the scale. Um, so that's how we often, and I think the positive affirmations, 
the, the other element of positive affirmations is not just to say things that are positive about yourself, but it's, it's to start outweighing the negative belief systems that you have. So a lot of people think positive affirmations should be good things about myself that are, that are currently true or that I've had and things like that. No, it should also be things that you don't have, things that you want to improve, because the only way you're going to offset that weighing scale is by putting more words and thoughts into that side, just as you did for the negatives. So it's really important that positive affirmation, it works in both ways, things that mm. are good about yourself and things that you want to be good about yourself. Yeah, 100%. I, and I think that you know, this idea of positive affirmations and saying something positive about yourself, it's so, it's so important when you're dealing with, you know, with failures and dealing with adversity. And, and I think one of the things that, and sort of speaking more generally, we can sort of use this idea to influence other aspects of our life and use it as the vehicle for the change that we want to see in other aspects of our life. And, you know, and I think that that's one of your big messages. And I think for, from something that I've learned from you. Um, and I think an example of that is, you know, when, so, you know, sometimes when people do experience setbacks in life, I mean, it's part of life, you, you're going to experience setbacks, but it's about being able to deal with those setbacks and being able to come back and smash it. And I think, you know, and you and I have had this discussion before, Minnie, and it's this idea of sport. And you know, sport is, in some ways, it's a microcosm of life in a sense. And I and I love to use this the tennis as a as a great example of this. In tennis and in cricket as well, you always have to focus on the next ball or the next point. You, you can't go and dwell on your mistakes, or else if you do dwell on your mistakes, you're going to lose. So, and I think you know, it's I think there's a very interesting correlation here between um, between you know sports and and life in a sense. So. One of my questions to you, do you, do you see that there's a relationship here between, you know, sports and, and, and mental health? Um, <clears throat> I think the sports, both sports that I play are very, very different. Mm, um, yeah. So my main two sports are cricket and futsal. Cricket, you have so much time on your hands that emotions and thoughts just come rushing to you, especially as a batsman. Um, you've got so much time to think that, we often start creating a lot of doubt and nervousness um, within us with those thoughts. Um, and I think, look, every, every athlete that plays their own sport is going to be able to draw their, draw their own parallels to mentality and stuff like that. But if we just take cricket as an example, um, <clears throat> now let's talk about, okay, how do we succeed in the sport of cricket? We talk about that specifically, and then let's extrapolate to life. I think if you're a batsman and you want to be able to succeed, there's actually only one thing that you can focus on, and that is the bowler coming in and bowling you the ball. And there's only one action that you can take, that is hitting the ball in the correct position. Yet batting, that almost makes up about 5% of batting because every other minute of, that you're out there is copying abuse from the fielders. Uh, you thinking about the ball that you've just missed or the time that you went out last game or all my mates are watching me. If I go out, I'm going to be letting them down. Um, I'm going to look like a fool if I do this, blah, blah, blah. So in order for you that, to then succeed, you need to block out those thoughts. You need to block out emotions. I don't think anyone's ever failed something and said, damn, I wish I doubted myself more. You know, it's really silly. Like the very idea of us doubting ourselves mm. is such a silly concept. We should almost just catch that thought, throw it out straight away yeah. and just be steadfast on focusing on what the 
current objective is. But, but do you think that doubts are a good thing, though? So I was listening to an interview that Rafa Nadal did recently for the ESPN, and he talks about how he uses doubts to fuel his fire. And he thinks that you know people that don't have doubts in themselves, it can, they can come across as a bit arrogant and, you know, I guess, cocky a little bit. I think doubts, like you said, I, I actually think the deepest thing about doubts and failures is the humbling factor. I think that's the deepest element of it all. It keeps everyone very humble. But going on another level of that, I think doubts often show us areas that we can potentially work on. And it also gives us that perfect balance that we need to execute something. Because being confident all the time leads to that complacency. And so that little bit of a doubt, it it kind of just calibrates that amount of power that you need perfectly so that you can execute it well. Um, so I would say, I would actually say the deepest level of doubt and failure is the humbling experience so that we aren't arrogant, we aren't too cocky, we aren't complacent with what we're trying to do. Um, it, it actually, it's a very good moderator, if you will. Mm, 100%. And I think that, you know, it, it, it kind of keeps us in check as well and it kind of um, it keeps us grounded which I think is very important I think it's very important to stay grounded and, and, and stay humble it's a humbling process like you mentioned before um, and I think it's here where you can we can sort of see the lines between you know physicality and mentality the lines sort of get a bit blurred here because I think that your know, doubts can sometimes fuel your actions and I think that's very important um, are you able to and I think you've told me this story before as well Mini are you able to sort of articulate the time where you sort of established, okay, that there is definitely a mind-body connection? And are you sort of able to tell the audience how that sort of came about? Yeah, I think the best way to sort of explain it is actually talking about my experiences of when I used to work at my old clinic. Um, That clinic, we were, it was very heavily inundated with chronic pain clients. um, And those stemmed from, say, car accidents, uh, work cover type of injuries, Um, You name it. Chronic pain meaning these guys have had their injuries for anywhere between six months to 12 years. I think that was the longest um, duration of an injury that I'd seen or pain that I'd seen uh, for one of my patients. So this is something that I didn't really learn in depth in university uh, when it came to chronic pain and stuff like that. But we'd always sort of um, saw elements of it. Now, one thing that we were taught as physios, when you're taking somebody's history, you take their full physical history. You know, when did the injury happen? How did it happen? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then there was always a little segment at the end of the subjective history, um, like get, taking their sort of history, which was uh, called yellow flags. And those were generally external or mental stresses that could potentially impact the person's injury. But it was always like minor. Uh, the way I like to describe it is... If you were to write out uh, an answer in an exam of the perfect way to do a subjective history, if you missed out on the yellow flags, you wouldn't lose too many marks. That's the kind of emphasis that was sort of shown on it. Not much at all. So anyway, so once I started getting into, yeah, once I started getting into the work environment uh, and I started seeing a lot of patients with chronic pain issues, I was just like, holy crap, like I was so overwhelmed. I'm like, how do you treat someone who's got chronic pain. Like I am a physical therapist who's trying to help somebody with pain who is most likely going to have permanent pain for their whole life. And I was like, what the, what's, what's my purpose here? Um, 
and you know you do your hands-on treatment that feel a little bit of relief and then but inevitably the pain comes back you do a little bit of exercise holds the pain at bay for a little bit but the pain's always there and then I started to see especially with a lot of the patients who were making a lot of improvements and gains and stuff like that that there, there was one gentleman that I remember specifically when he was going extremely well. He, he was in a car accident, had really limited shoulder range of motion. Um, and I think it took about a year for us to actually regain full range of motion in his arm. And at the one year mark, when he was absolutely flying along with his physical health, um, something very tragic happened in his life. Um, I think it was to do with a family member. And almost just like that, his shoulder range of motion went all the way back down to like say 50%. And I was like, hang on. I was like, how does that work? And, and again, this is my first year of working, having never seen anything like that. And I was like, that's really bizarre. I had a chat to my manager about it. And he's just like, yeah, look, um, these things can happen. People go back and forth, especially when they've got chronic pain. It's very common. And I was like, okay. But I wasn't really willing to just accept that as, as the answer. Um, so then I started to notice, you know, I started to talk to him a little bit more. He told me about this tragedy that happened. And that was like the yellow flag element of the subjective history. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to put a big asterisk on that. And I'm going to come back to that thought later. Then I started to notice this more and more with every other one of my clients. I started to ask them a little bit more about what's happening in their day-to-day -day lives um, and how their mental health is. Like, how are you feeling? Something as simple as like, how, how are you feeling today? How's your mood and stuff like that? And I started to notice a really strong parallel between people's mood and mentality and their level of pain. And it got, it was just so like, it was so clear to me at that point that they both parallel each other. Like, yes, they're going to be, uh, there are going to be a few little branches. It's like two really big trees. There's going to be a few branches here and there that go either way, but ultimately the the absolute stem of it all, the main branches are still going up um, completely side by side and parallel. Um, and to me, I was just like, this is amazing. Like it was a huge breakthrough to me where I thought if we can at least make people aware of that situation, they're going to start focusing on improving their mental health a little bit more. Mm -hmm. They might go see a psychologist, a counselor, or talk to, talk to me about it or talk to a friend about it or something like that. So, so what you're saying is that if they make changes physically, then that will actually give them a platform to change on the mental side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think I think the physical pain that they were feeling was just a manifestation of every aspect of their life, not just that the shoulder tendon was torn or something like that. And so when they could be aware of, hey, if I'm stressed out at work, my pain increases, maybe I can start to realize how do I you know, work on my stress management uh, in that work environment. Or if something problematic is happening at home and I feel my lower back is starting to increase in pain, okay, maybe that's more of a sign that rather than just working on the symptoms, which is the physical pain, I can work at a deeper level and, and look at the cause of all of it. Um, and, I, and I started to find I, just having that conversation with a lot of the patients really started to open up their eyes. And they're just like, hey, you know what? Like, I did what you said. I took a little bit more of a break during work. I, I tried to do something that I enjoyed and my shoulder is feeling a little bit better, a little bit more functional. Um, so I guess that was the origins of where I started to see the physical and mental being such mm. parallels. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty insane. Um, and, and it's so great because 
when I take a step back and you know take a look at your life and and the work that you've done and you're currently doing, it seems to me that you know the work that you're doing it's kind of a manifestation of or or an accumulation of all the learnings and life experiences that you've garnered throughout your time. Um, and it's sort of translated into, and it's all, all your life experience is sort of channeled into this one product. And, and, and obviously we've spoken about that for quite, a, for quite some time. And it's so great to see that you're having the success that you're having. And I think it's, it's thoroughly deserved and um, I, I congratulate you on that. Um, but it wasn't an all a linear path just to get to the stage of your life. And, and I feel like it's, it's, it's really good to explore this a little bit because obviously you're a you're of Southeast Asian descent and, you know, there are some certain stigmas that are associated with, um, you know, with, with either following a passion or doing something that, that you want to do, which is not exactly what aligns with what either your parents want or what, you know, or your other family want. So it was being, uh, following a passion of being in physiotherapy, especially being the background that you have, did you feel that there was a bit of a stigma associated with that? Um, I think... Like, as you've said, being of South Asian background, um, my parents also did want me to go down the traditional sort of uh, medicine path. And I think that was also paved by my older brother, who is a GP. Um, And my brother was, you know, always a great student, really studious, um, probably the most upstanding person that I know. Um, And so he he was such a great role model for us um, growing up. And... um, my parents did want me to sort of follow in that foot in his footsteps a little bit as well. Um, but like I said, I just from an early age, I I sort of knew I wanted to do physio. Um, and my brother was also very supportive of that as well. He's just like, look, medicine, it is a grueling kind of course to go through. Um, and I saw him sort of go through a lot of difficulties throughout his, um, studies as well. And I was sort of just like, look, I don't think I'm, I'm definitely not as studious as he was back then as well. So I was like, I think, I would rather do what I feel like I actually know at the moment what I want to do. Um, But I think a big distinction there about following your passion and stuff like that. um, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know why I wanted to do it. And so I think that's a very, very big distinction for anyone who's looking for things uh, like their career and stuff like that. Because I can honestly say, once I started doing physio at university, I hated it. I absolutely hated the course. Um, it wasn't anything that I expected. Um, it was a lot, a lot to do with more the hospital setting of physiotherapy, um, which is very rewarding. And it's and I, you know, I'm grateful for all the physio that do do that because it's a very important job. But it wasn't the reason that I wanted to do it um, to do physio. And so I was absolutely despising university. It was really far away for me as well. So I was traveling a lot. There was periods where I was living away from home. Um, and honestly, in those four or five years, I was just having a very difficult time. Um, and it sort of got to the point where I actually did want to quit doing physio. Um, so it was a period where I actually took off like a full year to think about, is this what I want to do? Um, and I was lucky enough in that time to get in touch with a physiotherapist um, out in the southeastern suburbs. And he was like, look, the university side of things is tough. But once you graduate, you can sort of pave the way to do what you sort of want to do. Um, and then that brought me to my first grad job in a private practice clinic. And whilst that was infinitely better than what I went through at uni, I was starting to find after the second year I was there and even the third year, I was really starting to dislike it. 
um, wasn't disliking the people or anything like that. Like I absolutely love my colleagues, my ex-colleagues and stuff. But again, it was like, yes, I'm doing physiotherapy, but I'm not enjoying what I'm doing. And it truly was because I didn't know why I was doing it, what I'm trying to achieve by it and stuff like that. Um, and I think over that third year, I started, I actually went to perform Hajj, which is like our religious um, pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia. Um, and that was just, I think my life literally just flipped upside down after that. Like I just saw a lot more purpose. Um, I, I started to think a little bit more deeply about what it is that I'm trying to do, why I want to do it and things like that, and really start to find my why. Um, and then once I sort of found that why, it was just like, it literally was just like a light bulb moment. I was like, that's it. I'm quitting my job. I'm quitting. Oh, wow. I don't care if I've got no safety or security or anything like that. I'm just mm. going to plunge into starting my own business um, and just put it all on the line. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a very risky business because um, <laughs> I was actually listening to uh, Simon Sinek recently because he he actually does a very you know similar talk on on this idea of quitting. And he sort of gives the example of, there are some people that, you know, that stay in their job for about one month and then they quit straight away, right? And it's like, he sort of says that, you know, you should try and stay with it a little bit longer and, and persevere with it and then, you know, um, continue to do that and show that resilience. And then if it's not for you, then after that, then then quit. And I feel like you've done this very, you've done a very similar thing here. You've, you've gone into this, to this job and you've, you've said, okay, you've stayed on there for a year and decided that this wasn't for you. And now you're actually pursuing something, something that you actually like. It's pretty interesting that you said that you've sort of developed that resilience, which is really nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I, I don't want to sort of be too conclusive with the way I say this next part, because I think it's very different for everyone. Um, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree that there probably are some people who maybe persisting is the right thing to do whilst they, whilst mm, they of sort course, of find yeah. themselves. Um, I was very lucky that I sort of knew my why. I had the background in having a university degree that could support me in my job. Um, and once again, I, I was in a position of privilege to be able to make that decision and that leap um, to quit my job and, and sort of just go in, go all in for it. But I do agree that I think once you've found your why and your passion, you need to put everything on the line for it. There can't be, you know, one foot in this store, one foot, one foot outside the door and stuff like that. You've got to be all in once you've found something, um, because only then do you really um, you feel the fear that drives you um, and you feel, I guess, the desperate need to succeed. Um, there's no easy way out. You know, the first few months, I only had like a few clients here and there. Like, I was like, crap, what have I done? I've got like no, no form of income or, or source of income here. What do I do? Do I go back? Um, and I was, I was literally just like, it was the first three months were just absolute panic. Um, luckily I had some really, really good friends by my side who had started their own businesses and they're just like, what you're feeling right now is completely normal. Um, but you know what? I'm, I'm someone who I've always been a little bit driven towards taking high risks and stuff like that. Mm. And I can't imagine myself doing it any other way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that actually, this idea of, you know, laying it on the line, it's, it's actually quite similar to what um, Steve Jobs said in one of his speeches um, to, I think it was Yale graduates or something. I might put the link here in the, in the show notes. Um, and in the entire speech, he sort of talks a bit about you know, his life as, as a teenager and how he had cancer. And it was actually a really engrossing speech. Um, but one of the lines that really stuck with me was when he started talking about death. And I know it's pretty intense, but the way that he sort of explains it is, 
if you go into any situation in your life knowing that you one day die, it's actually a perfect way to think that you don't have something to lose. And it's a really, it's really interesting to think about that because it sort of gives you perspective in a sense. And I actually use that as uh, as a way which, for which I draw my strength from, especially on the days throughout the program when we're doing max lifts. Um, and for those of you who don't know, obviously a max lift is literally, you know, your P, essentially your PB um, when we're when we're doing for five reps, and it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. It's for for deadlifts and. Um, I remember, you know, before we do any max lifts, we we're sort of talking and like we're we're talking and it's pretty chatty and it's, it's pretty it's pretty casual. But then about two minutes before the lift, you actually take a step back and you don't actually talk. And it's just, you know, I I, I didn't really understand why that was the case until about you know five or six weeks in, and I feel like I got to a stage where it was just me in the room and no one else was in the room and. All I could do was focus on the task that was in front of me. And it's really it's a really cool moment. And in sports, they sort of talk about this. They talk about this idea of being in the zone. And it's so cool because I don't I don't think I don't think of anything at that point. I just I don't think about anything about my external problems or work or you know the fact that I have to get up at 845 <laughs> the next day. Um, and you know, everything sort of fades away into the background. It actually it actually feels like a form of meditation. Uh, so I've got about three points that I want to make on what you've said, because that was very, very interesting and profound. Um, you're absolutely right. I've, I've always told people that I actually find gymming as my meditation. Let, let's think about what meditation is. Meditation is an act to improve focus where you limit your thoughts. I actually think meditation is not about thinking about nothing. I think it's about thinking about one thing. You're improve, improving your focus on something singular, and so a lot of the time, that singular focus might be your breathing. It might be a positive thought that you have, whatever it might be. And you're blocking out thought. And thought generally uh, stems from emotion or vice versa. So if your ability to block out thought and emotion is there, it doesn't matter what the act is, that to me is meditation. And for me, the deadlift, you're absolutely right. It's, it's 100% meditation because you have singular focus. And now let's bring it back to the times we failed. The moment you fail is the moment you have a seedling of doubt or your thought strays even for a second. I remember this one time for myself, I was lifting, uh, I was trying to lift 180 kilograms for five reps and had the music blaring. I was in the zone, absolutely psyched up. And I've lifted the first one, boom, felt great. Lifted the second one, felt great. Lifted the third one, boom, felt great. Just before I was about to lift the fourth one, I got a phone call. And that minuscule loss of concentration, that weight did not budge. And I was like, how is that possible? I've done three reps so comfortably, and I lose that focus for just a split second. Done. I was gone. Um, So you're 100% right. It's absolutely meditation. Now, the second point... um, that's something that you obviously said, I'm going to tell you a little bit later about what your driving uh, motivator is, right? Um, and, and you're right. I do step back in that moment for a big lift because everybody has something different um, to inspire them and motivate them. And you often use those same things in other aspects of your life, you'll notice. You'll see for career, you might push yourself further um, to study harder or whatever it might be. You use whatever inspires and motivates you. But your story there actually reminded me of 
um, the book Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And for those who haven't heard his story, unbelievable story. This man is literally the epitome of man. Like he's got absolute like mind blowing mentality and mental strength. Um, But the thing was, he didn't always have that. And he actually says in his book, uh, the way he would actually motivate himself was very opposite to positive affirmations. He would say negative affirmations, but he would say the negatives about himself that he didn't like. One was about his weight. One was about his intelligence. And so he would write, in his own words, very abusive um, sticky notes and put it on his mirror. And that would motivate him to want to be better. And each time he achieved something that was no longer true, he'd take that note off the mirror. That, to me, I don't think is suitable for everyone because you have to be a different level of of mental beast, I think, to to be able to cope with that. Um, But it's kind of, I I think it's what we were talking about before, where when you do find your weaknesses or negatives about yourself that you want to improve, absolutely tap into that and make it a positive. And you do that successfully every Mm. week. Um, So I think that's that's hugely um, inspiring to sort of hear that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's about... Taking what you have currently and, you know, the motivations you have to your disposal, whether it's, you know, whether it's fears or whether it's um, setbacks and channeling that and sort of converting that into a positive. And I think it's very, very important. It's very similar actually to what, um, to your bit of your story, because you wouldn't be in the position that you are right now if it wasn't for the fact that you were unhappy at your previous job. 100%, 100%. And like, and going back to the conversation we're having about, um, quitting when you found your why or persisting and stuff like that. I think where when you graduate from university and high school, um, actually more specifically university, you find this period of your life, which I think extends from when you graduate to the next, say, five years or so, where you're very lost and you don't know what the next step is. You don't know what you're trying to do. There's two things that I feel um, are sort of the reasons for that. One of them is lack of tangible progress. So what I mean by that is when we're in school, there is a tangible progress every single year. You go from grade one to grade two to grade three to grade four, five, six, all the way up to 12. Then when you go to university, you're given a little bit more freedom, but you still go from first year to second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, whatever, depending on your course. So you're constantly seeing progress. When you're out in the working world, you're just working. And so all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, I'm going to be doing this for the next 40 to 50 years of my life. Is this actually what I want to do? And I think that creates so much panic in people. And when you, and and again, it takes that, I, I genuinely think it takes about three to five years for you to go through this lost and confused period. What I can honestly sort of say is just my, my honest advice to anyone in that sort of um, bracket is go through mm. it. Go through being lost. Go through not knowing what you want to mm. do. Um, go through a bit of uncertainty because all of that is extremely mm. important. And there's definitely some symmetry in what you just said there because Sunny and I have this exact same conversation. Um, and I think I've mentioned this in a previous podcast as well. Um, this idea that you know when you're, when you're younger, you're you think of life as a balancing, balancing scale between responsibility and freedom. And, you know, when you're younger, the freedoms far, far outweigh your responsibilities. But then as you grow older, that balancing scale sort of, sort of shifts. And 
you sort of, and in that transition, that's when a lot of these mental health um, problems can can arise, especially when you're going to university and when, especially when you're in, in high school. In high school and university, everything sort of progressed, but then when you get into full-time work, it's like you said, it's completely different. And, you know, when you get older, you start to experience uncertainties that you never really could experience when you were a younger person. I think a lot of it actually comes down to digging a little bit deeper as to what those uncertainties are trying to tell you. Generally, our uncertainties are linked to a fear of something. Now, if we can start to figure out what that fear might be, it'll give you a little bit more clarity as to one, whether feeling that uncertainty is justified, or two, how can I, in the meantime, um, sort of assist that fear? And three, give you a bit more clarity as to, okay, if this is the true fear of what I'm feeling right now, then maybe I need to guide my life or my career or my passion in this direction. Um, And it sort of links back to um, Maslow's hierarchy. So obviously, at the bottom of the hierarchy, we have our physiological needs, food, water, etc., just to stay alive. Then it's our need of safety and security. Now, when you're in uni you're thrust into this environment where you are now an adult and you have to start making decisions that's going to form your safety and security, and I put that in quotation marks, for the rest of your life. And because you're you're at such a young age at that time, you haven't fully developed into a grown adult, that is a very scary thought to have, to think, crap, my whole livelihood depends on what my grades are tomorrow or what uni degree I'm doing. So because that safety and security hierarchy has been compromised, it's very hard to see beyond that. Now, for I think people are also wired a little bit differently on a slight tangent. There are some people who are very certainty-driven, and there are also other people who are very good in uncertain times, in chaotic times. So people are going to respond to it very differently, so I can't give a generalized answer for that. But what I will say is... Think about your past and think of any time there has been uncertainty. Now, for most of us, we would have gone through some stage of uncertainty, whether it be at school, whether it be at sport, whether it be at family. Yet, we're here today and we're actually okay. Um, And for the best part of it, a lot of that has shaped who we are to make us better people and the people that we are today. So sometimes in in a time of uncertainty or when you're in the storm, The idea isn't to get out of the storm or try to help someone in that storm by trying to get them out. So, sorry, what I mean by that is, like, let's say if someone's having, like, a panic attack, you don't go up to them and say, don't panic, or why are you panicking? Like, that's not going to help anyone within that. In that moment, we just need to realize, hey, everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. Once you have that thought and you're like, okay, everything will be okay, I will come out on top eventually, that's when we can be like, all right, cool. So the next time I'm in this kind of uncertain phase, what structures can I potentially set up to allow myself to thrive in that situation or to mm. not feel that same sense of fear? Um, so use those sort of uncertain times as a bit of a learning curve. And do you see that there's a, um, any common uncertainties that people generally feel? I mean, if you look at particularly within, just coming from a Southeast Asian lens, you, you sort of see this idea of family and, and trying to, you know, gain respect from your elders and your family friends and, you know, trying to gain respect from 
um, your own family. Do you see that as do you see that as a common sort of uncertainty or element that drives people's behaviors? <clears throat> I think we all we're always trying to, especially when we're young, we are trying to fulfill a certain expectation of our parents. I think that's just naturally ingrained in all of us. And we've had this chat um, in our very first session where I've noticed with every single person that I've ever trained in this high performance program, there is an element of doing something for your parents or doing something for family. If you are a parent, it's doing something for your children. So we set these expectations that we believe they are thinking. I think believing and thinking are the crucial words there because you'll get to a certain point and a certain age where you start to see your parents more as friends and you start to have more open and candid conversations with them. And I mean, you're how old? 21 at the moment. Yeah, but I look like I'm 16 though. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, with the beard, I look about the Without the beard, I look the same age. Um, I think even at your age, we sort of like, I know for myself, it's still sort of felt like they are the disciplinarians. They're the ones that we always have to impress and there's no room for failure. Um, I think once you actually start that conversation with them, uh, and it's hard. I'm, I'm saying it as if it's easy. It's not. It's even for myself. It was such a difficult time to just try to have that first conversation with them. You realize that your the expectations that you set on yourself was purely a perception. And so often, I'm sure other people have gone gone through this. Um, that I'm, I'm sure they've gone through this, where it's just like you'll be having the conversation, and your parents will be like. No, I actually never thought that of you or never expected that of you. And you just think, damn, how many years did I waste thinking that that's what they wanted from me or expected from me? Um, And so if there's any advice I can give, it's have that conversation, that scary conversation earlier. Um, Because I think once you feel the confidence of your family, your parents, especially behind you, it just gives you so much more confidence and robustness in your life it i think in my opinion gets rid of the biggest uncertainty that you have in your life Um, you know you start your life from your parents and from your family and generally speaking you end your life with your parents i mean sorry your family and stuff around you Um, so i think that the true kind of secret almost is build those relationships within the family as good as you can and you'll see so much success sort of drive from that. But it's very difficult. And, I, and again, I, I empathize with a lot of the people, my friends as well, who have difficult family relationships and stuff like that. It's, mm. it's not always easy. Um, but going back to the question that you've asked about that stigma from parents and whatnot, mm. um, that, that's how I sort of perceive it. Yeah. And this idea of family is so deeply entrenched in all of us. And, and sometimes you can see or some people can see family as as a pillar of support, especially when we're going through tough times, which is what I really wanted to talk to you a bit about because, you know, at Bottled Up, as I think I sound like a broken record now, but, you know, our mission is to get people's stories out there. And then through um, our previous conversations, we, you've touched on a little bit about the not-so-happy times that you've, <clears throat> that you've faced throughout your life because um, your childhood wasn't all just, you know, this imagery of you, of you gallivanting in a field of sunflowers. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> So are you able to sort of articulate 
for me and the audience what your tough times were like um, for you during your youth? Yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, there's probably a couple of examples that I can think back to, um, which at the time I probably thought they were dark. But honestly, now that when I look back at it, I was like, you know what, I'm very grateful that sort of happened. Um, I think one of them, which we've spoken about before, is my high school life. Um, so I went to three different high schools. Um, and the very first high school that I went to was the most eye-opening experience that I've ever had in my life. Um, it was a really, 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 really rough school. Um, and I was just like this young, naive, innocent kid, you know, with glasses. I was like massive geek. Um, and I'd gone to this school and... I had never been in any sort of confrontation, whether it be physical or verbal. And I remember in my very first week there, I, I can't remember what the event was, but I got absolutely bashed in that first week. Um, and it may have just been like on the, on the sporting field or something like that. And that was the first ever time anything like that had happened to me. I didn't know anyone at the school everybody was different to me, like off a different sort of background or something like that. So I couldn't even familiarize myself with anyone around me. And here, so like here I am in an absolute unknown, having been like physically belted for the first time in my life. And I was just like, what is going on? And I remember coming home every day and I was just like, this is literally the worst thing that has ever happened to anyone, surely. Um, and it just kept happening as well. It was just like on a monthly basis, things like that would happen. And then as, as the sort of weeks kind of progressed in my new school, um, through the different curriculums and stuff, we started playing more sport and whatnot. And this is why I absolutely love sport because sport is such a great normalizer. Um, everyone is just, everyone's differences are gone and you're just trying to achieve the one thing. Um, and I was quite lucky to be quite good at sport, um, especially back in my high school days. And once everyone sort of saw that, they did gain a certain level of respect for me. And people started, you know, becoming friends with me a little bit more. They started chatting to me. But also at the same time, in a weird way, these guys who were sort of bullies and absolute brutes, they did also impart a lot of wisdom as well. And they, that was, you should always stand up for yourself. Like if someone hits you, you hit them back sort of mentality. Now, obviously, I don't mm. condone violence or anything like that, but definitely, yeah. you, see, you see that sort of competitiveness yeah. or that bullying in every aspect of life that's not physical. And I think it's so important. It was probably the most important thing I learned mm. in my high school years, which was you have to be able to stand up for yourself, whether that's what you believe in, um, whatever it might be, your value system, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to be able to stand up for it. Anyway, so I transitioned from that to a second school. I was mm. only there for like six months or so, but I was very much like guards up, like ready to, ready to fight because that's, where the, that's the school that I came from. Um, but it was very different. And then I eventually um, went to Melbourne High. And <clears throat> that to me, I know we've already made a Harry Potter reference, but that to me was my Hogwarts. Like <laughs> I felt like I was at home there. Um, and I think the... It actually looks like Hogwarts on the outside. It does, yeah. And I think... One of the other big lessons that I can um, sort of lean on from my schooling time was how important your environment is. Um, in my first high school, I was in this environment where it was just physical, you know, 
physical bullying, um, brutes. Like you just, it was just like wild, wild west. And my education just went out the door, basically. I never came home and studied. I didn't even see the value in studying. No one there saw the value in studying. I was lucky to be naturally a little bit smart to get me through my tests and stuff. Um, honestly, and if I end, continued at that school, who knows what my ATAR would have been. I reckon it would have been like something unimaginable to myself and to my, to my parents. Then when I got to Melbourne High eventually, it was just seeing everyone around me putting their head downs, working so hard. I was like, holy crap, that's what I have to do now. And automatically I had to up my standards to whatever I saw around me. Um, cause a, a common, a, I think a common misconception about Melbourne high is that it's such a great school with great teachers and stuff like that. It really isn't like, and, and I say that with the utmost respect, we didn't have the best teachers at our school. It ultimately is a public school. Um, I think the reason why the school is so good is purely because of environment. You see all your colleagues and st- all these other students in your, in your year level just studying, 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 and you're just like, crap, man, if I don't do it at their level, I'm going to fall behind. And I think that's a good lesson to learn in any aspect of life. Keep a very motivating, driven environment around you because that's what's going to allow you to be your best. Yes, it's pressurizing. Yes, it can be a bit stressful. It was stressful for me, but I'm so glad I did it because I got the absolute maximum out of myself because of my mates. And as you know, these guys are my best mates even to this day. Like I consider them like my brothers. Like they'll come to my house and I don't even need to be home. Um, so find those sort of people around you that do push you because that enables the best out of you. Yeah, and it's kind of that nature versus nurture type thing, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the second sort of dark period um, or down period, if you like to call it, of my life um, kind of goes back to what we were saying about uncertainty. Um, it was just such, it was such an uncertain, uncertainly fueled time where I just had no idea what was going on in my life. I didn't, I didn't know what the next day was going to bring. And I just remember this, I reckon it was probably like a three-week period where I, I, my mind luckily never ever went to self-harm or committing suicide or anything like that. And I've been very grateful for that. Um, but it's sort of, it was just like this blankness to every day. And I was like, what is the point of anything? What is the point of this? What is the point of that? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Um, and I think, again, I, I'm not going to pretend like I know what, people are going through in this difficult time and stuff like that, or that do have depression or severe depression, anxiety and stuff like that. Um, but just from that little microcosm, um, I think the best thing that I did was I just sort of just stuck on the path and kept persisting. Um, I just kept doing the things that I needed to do. I was still going into work, um, and keeping good people around you as well was always so beneficial. Like just picking up the phone and having a chat to my mate didn't have to be about how I was feeling. It was just chatting to them. Um, it just made me feel like that normality again. Um, cause eventually the, it always gets better. The, there's always light at the end of the tunnel, um, through any of those uncertain times. And I look back and that's why I can't even call it dark times or anything like that. Cause I look back and I'm like, that also helped form who I am today. Of course. And was there a particular event in your life that led to that uncertainty? Yeah, I think I think it was a series of events. Um, there was quite a few different elements 
um, from different aspects of my life, um, which had all, also, I wouldn't say they went downhill, but it, they kind of just evaporated. Um, and it sort of left me with this feeling of, okay, well, those aspects of my life were so important to me. Um, and now all of a sudden they're sort of just gone. So I didn't know where to kind of turn my attention at all. I didn't, I couldn't, I literally just couldn't see what was in front of me. Um, and it was a very, it was a very sort of scary time because I'm just like, shit, like, like the world almost looked very different. It was as if you had just been born that day in, you know, your 24 year old, 25 year old, however old I was body. And you're just like, crap, like, what am I supposed to do? How do I navigate through any of this? Um, but yeah, like I said, like having good people around me just to have a chat to, um, but also just kind of staying the course, if that makes sense. Um, just doing the daily things that I needed to do, um, mm. really sort of just got me through that period. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And, and it's so great that, you know, you you've come out the other end and you're now doing a, a job that you love and you, you know, you're, you're, you're living a life that's not only aligned to your values, but you're also, you know, imparting your wisdom and your life teachings into, um, into your everyday work. And, um, and, and, I, and I've certainly benefited from that. So thank you so much for, for, for you know, for staying the course, like you said. Um, you know, I am mindful now that we have been going on for quite a while now, since now Minaz, and I, I do understand that it can be a bit, uh, a bit tiring me, uh, you know, throwing questions at you for, for an hour. Uh, no, I just, I just, again, once again, like to thank you guys for inviting me and, and thinking that it's, uh, it's worthy of me to speak about these sort of things, um, given the conversations that we've had and whatnot. So I do really appreciate being invited on, um, like we've sort of said before, it's very similar to a lot of the conversations that we've already had in the past. Um, and I, th I feel like I'm quite comfortable talking about these things because these are genuinely things I talk about every single day with all of my clients. Um, and one of the reasons I love what I do is, um, or why I feel like I can have certain perspectives on certain things is because I actually work with so many different types of people. I think I've now done close to 4,000 consultations um, since graduating. And it's, it's not the type of interactions that you have day to day, because I find when you're <clears throat> in your day to day routines or week to week routines, you've got your friends, you've got your family, you've got your work environment, right? Typically, or your sporting team, which you might add to that. All things which you have placed yourself there and surrounded yourself with people who are similar to you in that regard, work, sport, friends, family. What I found with myself with physio is I have absolutely no say with who I see in a way, especially when I was working in clinic and hospital. So I've, I've been talking to people from absolutely all walks of life and people I thought I'd never, ever talk to and hear their experiences and stuff like that. And for me, I think that was like the absolute best way for me to learn about people and about the world because... I've just seen such a range and I'll continue to see such a range. Um, so these sort of conversations like you've done with me today, I'll often pose questions to my clients just to see, okay, what, what's, what's another way somebody might be able to think about this situation. Um, so a lot of the responses that I've given you um, are sort of the summation of what I've experienced with my different clients. And once again, I think you guys are doing an absolutely marvelous thing. Um, as Richie would like to say, um, and I, I, I can't wait to sort of see, I know how tough it is starting something that you feel passionate about. 
Um, and I just can't wait to see where you guys go with this because I know for myself as well, it takes you to different pathways and different journeys and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and you figure out more and more what it is that you're wanting to try achieve and things like that. Mm. Um, so I can't wait to see like the metamorphosis of bottled up and see where it gets to. And, you know, all the, all the big sort of big honchos you'll get on the show one day. <laughs> metamorphosis. That's a, that's a word and a half, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I might just finish on that note then. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, No, that's cool. That's gold. Um, but no, I mean, as, and you, like you kind of mentioned this before, you know, um, you know, but big guests and stuff. We do have some, some big ones coming up. So hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone enjoys that. But no, nah, thank you. Thank you, Minhas, for, for joining us today. And um, no, thanks for having you know, me. You know, I hope you, I wish you all the best for everything that, that happens in, in your future. And um, yeah, nah, thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, this is Manx signing off. Awesome. Thank you. And that's another conversation done and dusted. We do hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did being on there. Minhas is an incredible person and really easy to talk to. And you can find him on Instagram and Facebook at pumpandclick underscore physio. And feel free to hit him up if you have any inquiries about the gym or his program. Well, that's really it for Sunny and myself for season one with uh, Ujwal steering the ship for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we do hope you guys have enjoyed the first season and the episodes that we've done so far. Please do show us some love on our socials with all the relevant links in the bio. It's been a tough couple of months so far for all of us with the lockdown and restrictions, but with Dan finally easing restrictions, it's, uh, there are certainly good times ahead. So until next time, on behalf of myself, Sunny and Ujwal, Stay safe and stay well.